Professor Sarah Robertson's work unravels the mystery of the immune system in reproductive health. Sarah charts her journey in science from stargazing as a child before exploring chemistry and physics, moving into biochemistry and immunology for her career. In this episode, Sarah talks about the science of being a parent and being a parent working in science. Welcome, Sarah. It's a real pleasure to have you here. I'd like to start by asking really about your early life and education. I understand you're originally from Adelaide, so Adelaide born and bred? I am Adelaide born and bred. So yeah, I went to school in Adelaide University, here at the University of Adelaide. I have spent most of my life here because it's a beautiful place to live. And did you know from a a very young age that you wanted to do science? I did. And I just count myself so lucky. It is such a gift to have an understanding of what you want to do with your life and to be able to get right into it and such a joy to have a job that you love. So yeah, I think I figured it out pretty early when I was a child, but I also really loved art. So at school, I really enjoyed all my subjects, but I did go through a period of thinking, am I going to be an artist? Am I going to be a scientist? And I thought, it would be really hard to be sure you could be creative every single day. And I kind of had in my mind, that's what you'd need to be if you were an artist. So I thought, well, maybe that's a reason to do science and maybe I'll get paid more. But the really interesting thing is we get to be creative every day being a scientist too. And that that's, that's not a pressure. It's a great thing. If you knew you were going to do science from an early age, did you have role models that got you interested in in science or how did how did you know that science was for you i had or i still have my dad and he was really important to me in kind of introducing me to the natural world and i remember a couple of key events actually you know as a child always going out at night looking at the stars and talking about the constellations and kind of imagining there's this enormous universe and, you know, we're just a tiny little dot and how we fit into that. And constantly talking about with him and other people in my family, my mum too, really, about how the world works, how nature and plants work and how our bodies work and just always being enthralled by that. And then Dad took me, I must have been about 12, I reckon, and um, there was an open day here at the University of Adelaide and we got to go into the physics building and see prisms and light moving through prisms and being split into colours and it just for me was so exciting and I I just thought oh my god I've, I've got to be able to come to a place where I can play with this incredible equipment and and make light do this. So I I actually started out thinking I was going to do chemistry and physics. And I I did actually when I first came well, in high school and then at university. But progressively moved more into the sort of biological sciences and then to biochemistry and immunology and absolutely loved the immunology. And then what's actually really striking to me is how progressively over the course of my career I've moved from the sort of atomic to the molecular to the cellular and physiology and now how to sort of integrate it all together I guess into a kind of holistic understanding of how we work how our bodies work how biology works is is so exciting. It's absolutely fascinating because it's really interesting to see how people's 
career progresses and sometimes sometimes you don't do it in a sense that you know you're strategically planning out this logical progression but it ends up that way so in terms of going into your field then did you start in reproductive biology and immunology in your phd or did your interest in the field start earlier than that yeah i so i i always thought um you know like i just said that i would sort of be with the more physical science but then i you know i loved immunology at university and it, the thing about immunology was that it was the hardest of all the subjects I was doing and it also seemed so totally unresolved and you know there were so many kind of conflicting elements of it that were still to be reconciled and every week or month it seemed like there was a big discovery and you know our lecturers would sort of come to the lectures and say oh you know last week somebody published about the T-cell receptor and I thought wow this is really evolving in front of our eyes this is happening right now and it, it seems so exciting and so important so relevant but you're preaching to the choir yeah well you're an immunologist so you get it but there are so many parts of immunology that we're still struggling to put together and the more I kind of worked in it the more I thought actually this isn't just about defense and rejection you know which is what we're taught but it's also about homeostasis and you know there are so many functions and roles for immune cells and the immune system in normal physiology and the way our tissues develop early in life and the way the housekeeping of the way all the component parts of the bodies are managed and I think that's where the reproductive part came in because it's not like the immune system is rejecting the fetus and the the embryo because if it did we would never get pregnant so it's the most amazing example of how the immune system has a whole nother half to it where it has to be convinced to be tolerant of certain foreign exposures and of course the fetus is the most classic example of that it gets genes from the dad so it's effectively a transplant it's expressing um, tissue transplantation proteins that would normally drive rejection so it has to be accepted by the body so this process of how the immune response is persuaded to accept and nurture some elements of our biology and in the case of pregnancy you know the most fascinating uh, I thought wow this is just such a challenging and important biological question I could really spend my life working on this and I have done was that the specific topic of your PhD? So my PhD was a little bit more focused, luckily. <laughs> I actually, I, look, I had amazing luck and fabulous mentors. I started out, I actually worked for three years with Graham Mayerhofer in a department of immunology here at the University of Adelaide as a research assistant. And I was working on mucosal immunology of the gut and how the the gut response to Giardia infection, actually. And, uh, you know, that's a, a really good example of how, you know, we need defence to come in. But actually, when it comes to gut pathogens like these protozoan parasites, it's often really hard to properly defend against them. So I spent three years working on a, a quite classical sort of mucosal immunology question. But then we lost our funding, as what happens. And um, this was before my PhD. And so I needed to find another job. And I went to, I'd heard about these great people across the road in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And I went to talk to Bob Seamark. And after that, Jeffrey Robinson, at that time, he was the head of the department. And they said, yeah, we want to get into this area of 
reproductive immunology, this was sort of in the, the late 80s, early 90s, we've heard this is an important area, but we don't know what immunology is, but you've, you've come from an immunology department, why don't you do it? And I just had this, that was pretty much my brief. <laughs> you can sort of do what you like. And I just thought, what an amazing opportunity. And I had great guidance and mentoring from both of them. And so we started working on very early pregnancy and how the embryo responds to signals from the immune response. Because at that time, people in Canada, Tom Wegman and others, and before him, actually Medawar back in the 50s and Billingham working with him had been thinking about how the placenta engages with the immune response. And they had found that there were molecules, cytokines, that sort of protein signals that communicate and talk back and forth between the immune system and the placenta. And it kind of looked like the early ideas of Medawar back in the 50s that the immune system was prevented and blocked from engaging in reproduction was actually wrong and that the immune response was intimately engaged and communicating all the time with all the the tissues of a placenta at least. So I thought, well, could that be happening with embryos as well prior and during the time of implantation? Because implantation is the time that's most vulnerable where things most often go wrong in pregnancy. And actually that's probably for a good reason. It's it's part of a kind of quality control system, you know, because it's really important that only the best embryos implant in the best circumstances. So we started looking at how cytokines um, communicate with embryos and Fairly quickly, we found there was this whole amazing conversation going on and some of the critical cytokines uh, secreted by the layers of the, the uterus, the epithelial cells, they're called, instruct the embryo how to develop. And at the same time, the embryo is using other cytokines to talk back to the maternal, the mother's tissues. But the amazing thing that we then discovered, and, and that was really my PhD, was to sort of look at those cytokines. And that was great because we had a fantastic translational outcome from that that turned into a, a really important improvement in IVF, being able to harness the power of these growth factor cytokines to replace some of the missing information in the culture dish and sort of recapitulate what's going on naturally in the female body by adding the cytokines. But the other great discovery we made is that one of the key events or factors that regulates the natural production of cytokines in early pregnancy is the male partner. At the time of conception, when seminal fluid is introduced into the female reproductive tract, you know, in a natural conception, the seminal plasma and the sperm are communicating also with the female reproductive tract immune response to elicit these cytokines and to sort of persuade the female tissues to maximize the chances of a conception and progression to a pregnancy. And that blew my mind, you know, that because we always had only thought, well, sperm's important for fertilizing an egg and that's the end of it. But it turns out that father, the male partner, you know, is having a huge impact on what happens for fertility and the likelihood of pregnancy. And that really carries forward actually into the, the whole health of the pregnancy and the way the fetus and the baby develop. That's some pretty amazing findings from a very broad PhD remit. The thing was, because the field was so new and it was bringing together two fields that hadn't really been, you know, where much hadn't been done. As we know, when two fields come together, it's such a rich opportunity for new discoveries. And I 
was just in the right place at the right time and, you know, able to, I guess, apply my own curiosity and with support from great mentors, we could make pretty rapid advances fairly quickly. That's fantastic. And did you continue on in that sort of fundamental with a view to translational research space for your postdoc and after your PhD? This is another complicated story because I would have loved to have gone overseas and done a postdoc. Um, And I actually kind of really had my eye on going to New York. I thought New York was the most exciting place on earth. And I'd met some people at a conference who had a great lab, who were doing the kind of work that connected well with mine. But I was married and I already had a child. I had a child very young. And it sort of became evident that it was going to be impossible to go overseas. And I remember thinking, oh, well, you know, everybody says I have to go overseas, so what's going to happen? And I I sort of had to be creative about how to navigate the next phase of my career development without that capacity to do an overseas postdoc. And luckily, the research I was doing was, I guess, kind of cutting edge and it was very productive. And Jeffrey and Bob thought that it would be good to apply to the NH and MRC. So we were able to secure funding for me to continue the work in Adelaide right from what we would think these days to, you know, be very early. As soon as my PhD was finished, I guess I was 30 something, early 30s and able to get my own funding and sort of become relatively independent from that quite early time. So That was very fortunate. And what that meant was that I could sort of get over that hump of having to have that overseas postdoc. But at the same time, I knew it was really important to have other experiences and exposures. So I organised to spend some time in Canada, but a sort of a shorter period, more as a sort of visiting scholar in Edmonton with Tom Wigman, one of, you know, the grandfathers in this field. I was able to spend three months in Canada. My family joined me for a period of that time. And, you know, then that started a collaboration that I could sort of continue and go backwards and forwards with and really has evolved to still be part of what I do today, actually, working in collaboration with great Canadian colleagues in Edmonton and, and elsewhere in Canada. And later on, a couple of years into my sort of postdoctoral years, I started a new collaboration with people in Sweden to progress the clinical translation of the IVF application of the cytokine work I mentioned. And that also, you know, I sort of navigated that as a a sort of series of short-term visits, which was much easier to do with a family. So I guess I I sort of had to be creative about how to prioritise and do the career development, but also make sure that I could manage that with my family. I think that's a really important message because I think still there is very much the perception that one needs to spend a period of time overseas. And that's a great experience, but it's not always possible if people have young families or carer responsibilities or for a wide variety of other reasons. So do you think there's still that pressure today for people to have that stage in their career development? And and what would you recommend to people who might be in your position today where going overseas is just not feasible in their situation. Yeah, I mean, it is really tough. And I think, especially for women, you know, as you say, who quite often have other responsibilities. So look, I would encourage people to have as many experiences in other labs, whether they're interstate or overseas, 
you're always picking the best quality labs and trying to sort of be strategic about that to learn new skills or to get into a, a related area or to build a new collaboration. But it doesn't have to be in the sort of traditional, you know, I'm going for two or three or four years. The way that I did it with these shorter term visits can be equally beneficial and thankfully sort of support mechanisms for doing that kind of shorter term visits. So I would encourage people to think about maybe that kind of approach and being creative about how to get the benefit of experience in other environments without necessarily that longer term commitment that takes you away from other important parts of your life, if that's what suits you. Always pick the best partners that are going to support you to do what you love and what's important to you. And if your career and being able to travel and align your family life with your career aspirations you know you you need the right people around you to support you and so being up front and having the right conversations with the people you need to bring along can also be a big help. I think that you raised a sort of other interesting point there recounting your experience being a mother an early career scientist and a mother simultaneously how did you juggle that I mean I think the big question a lot of us try and cope with is how do we manage this work-life balance? How do we get the equation right? Oh, look, I don't think there's any easy answer. And I think everybody in the end has to carve their own path around that. But having conversations and learning from other people is part of finding your own solution. For me, I was always really passionate and committed to my work. And, you know, that was clear to my, at that time, husband and first daughter. And eventually I had a second daughter and both of them have always... I think celebrated with me my passion and connection to my work and have enjoyed being part of a family where women are able to achieve and explore life and have important roles in life beyond family. So explaining to my children and my partner about why that's important and having them understand it and support me in it is really important. And both my girls, I think, Looking back at it now, although they recognised there were times I was late to pick them up, there may have been the occasional time I forgot to pick them up, but there were many times they came to the lab with me and got to understand what I was doing and be part of it. And other times they travelled with me and have gotten to see the world and meet people and have experiences as a result of my work. So the most important gift of all, I think, or, or benefit of being in a family like mine is that... I'm a role model to them to show them that they can expect to have goals and achieve and aspire to follow their passion and do the things that they love in life and to acquire financial independence. That's also a really important power in life. Um, you know, that, that is important for all women, I think, to um, find one way or another if they're able. And my mum was pretty strong about that so it's tricky and there are times you feel like you're not doing any of it as well as you should but you just have to be creative you have to find space for all of those things and manage and do your best you know don't beat yourself up if there are things that don't go right if the grant is not going to get in this year that's okay there are ways and and asking people around you to help you I had great friends who helped me a lot that's such an important point because I think often women in particular do spend a lot of time beating themselves up that they can't get the work-life balance right and it is so difficult. Providing a role model for your daughters 
and showing them that women can be successful in their career, can be driven and still have a family. It's a really important lesson, I think, for every kid to learn. And I say this as the daughter of a female scientist who um, also occasionally got forgotten to be picked up from school. So it happens. <laughs> and you survived and look how successful you are. It made you resilient and resourceful. Crazily enough, I ended up in science. So, you know, go figure. The research program that you've described sounds to me like it's it's really fundamental and connected to women's health and really improving improving the health of women is there difficulties in terms of funding for things that are seen as sort of quote unquote women's issues to be truthful i think the answer is yes there are some challenges look i love working in this area because there's huge scope for improvement the biology is amazing and there is a real sense of we're doing important things that can make a difference and uh, that's incredibly satisfying. But it does worry me that when you actually look at the facts of what the health burden is in this area, it's something like 20% of young women have endometriosis at least. Until recently, I think there was just one grant in the country. Now with MRFF, we have a bigger investment, but it still does not match the health burden. There are other huge areas. We've just been talking about miscarriage, which affects 200,000 Australian families every year. Again, just a couple of grants, probably two or three NHMRC grants in this area at a time. When you actually look at the WHO figures on the health burden in women's health and pregnancy and fetal and neonatal health, when you add all the, them together, it gets very close to the health burden comprised by cancer, especially when you add it up as disability life years and look at the whole of life impact. But we know in pretty much every country of the world, the amount of funding that goes into this area would be 10%, if you're lucky, of the amount that goes into cancer. But considering the impact on health, well-being and productivity of really important diseases like endometriosis, PCOS, pelvic floor prolapse, another one. I don't know the exact percentage, but a very substantial proportion of women in later life are severely constrained by pelvic floor prolapse with very little funding going into this area. There's huge economic and health benefits that could be returned to our country and all of us if we could better understand the causes of these conditions and develop novel interventions to improve the outlook. And that's just the women's health conditions. When you think about pregnancy disorders, 25 to 30% of all pregnancies impacted by preeclampsia, fetal growth restriction and preterm birth, the children born of those pregnancies have lifelong impacts to varying degrees. So, you know, it may not be perceptible in an individual child, but when you do the population health epidemiological work and look at the burden of chronic diseases, which are killing most of us slowly but surely, the programming contribution to the likelihood of or risk of those diseases, the importance of fetal life and time before birth in setting the life course trajectory of likelihood of getting a chronic disease or capacity to be resilient to a second hit that will induce one of those diseases, stroke, heart disease, neurological dysfunction, immune or inflammatory dysfunction, autoimmune disease, all of them are impacted by the way you grew 
as a fetus and the pregnancy disorders that I mentioned are guaranteed ways of hugely increasing the risk for that child. So that if we could just reduce the incidence of those conditions as an entire population, we would all be healthier and our cost of dealing with disease in later life would be reduced. But that's prevention and prevention research has always been harder to fund. But it's just one of the really important reasons to invest more into research in this area. And for all researchers, I guess all stakeholders, to understand and really value the significance of this area, huge gains could be made. I feel incredibly ignorant because I had no idea that the disease burden was so high um, and that it was, you know, that these conditions were just so prevalent in the population. It's going to become even more pressing as governments realise, and they now are, the impact of the declining birth rate, although many of us think that there are too many people on the earth and probably right now there are, what we're facing down the track with now most countries in the world being way below population replacement is an impending impact on our economies and our social structures with less taxpayers, less people to care for older people as they get older because of not enough children. And so I actually think there might be, although it's a kind of perverse imperative, but, you know, it's going to draw attention to issues around fertility, pregnancy and women's health issues that will be front of mind for many governments and societies as the impact of this begins to hit. I mean, China on its own is works out that it's going to be 200 million workers short within the next 30 years. And where are those people going to come from? And in Australia, we're in a similar position. At the moment, we're using you know, immigration to partially mitigate that, but it doesn't fix the problem. And we need to really value women, women's health, their reproductive health, and the importance of men in all of that too, male reproductive health as well. And think about what we can do to better take care of people in their reproductive years and to assist them in their their health, but also all of the social cross-sectoral structural issues that that impact people's interest in, in making families. That brings me really nicely to the final question that I wanted to ask you. Within this research field, what do you think is the next big thing or the most exciting discovery that's going on now that you can foresee making a big change in the next 20 years? It's a big question. Oh, look, there are several. I mean, IVF is going ahead in leaps and bounds, you know, and some of the technology there is incredible. But for me, actually, the real difference will be made by building our own individual, for all of us, capacity to care for our reproductive health and to understand how to take care of our our reproductive careers, if you like, through planning and preconception planning. And especially as an immunologist, from my perspective, understanding how your immune system sort of integrates so many of the environmental factors and exposures, endocrine disrupting chemicals, other environmental toxins that operate through the immune system to impair the immune tolerance that you need for healthy pregnancy. I guess once we build the evidence, you know, and and show conclusively that this is what this is a key part of the problems that we're having, and it will be the solution to finding better interventions and treatments and preventative sort of care through advice and planning, 
that we can all be responsible for, as well as our healthcare providers, I think will be, in the end, more transformational than what the technology brings, although the technology is, is so exciting as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time, Sarah. That was an absolutely fascinating, fascinating discussion. And um, please keep doing the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you, Kirsty. Great to talk to you. You've been listening to Women in Science. Production for this episode was by Dr Marina Fortes, Dr Marlous Decker and Dr Kirsty Short. Senior technical production was by Dan Seed. Make sure you subscribe to Women in Science. Thanks for listening.